Hello and welcome to Seven Talks, the digital digestive designed to bring together the best work coming out of the seven stars and from across the media galaxy. I'm Amelia. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. We're back in the studio to talk you through September's guide to what's hot in media land. We also have the lovely Michelle here with us from our Insight and Analytics team. Hi. Who's going to talk to us about the latest findings from our quarterly tracking survey, the QT. Our first read today looks at the effect of general data protection regulations, or as it's otherwise known, the infamous GDPR. Given how long we've been talking about GDPR, it may come as a surprise that it's only been three months since the EU-wide regulation came into effect. However, we've already seen some early casualties as a result of the law. Most notably, data companies Drawbridge and Verve have both pulled out of Europe and blamed GDPR for the move. As expected, AdTech's major players, Google, Facebook and Amazon, have remained relatively unscathed, with consent fairly easy to come by. The difficulties that GDPR poses looks to have fallen at the feet of the smaller technology platforms. There have been a number of companies pulling sales teams or even their whole advertising platform, in the case of Weave, out of the UK, albeit without explicitly stating GDPR as the reason. A recent Reuters study looked at the delivery of cookies across news sites and it's the UK that has seen the largest drop of all European territories. Between April and July, there has been an estimated 45% drop in the use of third-party cookies in the UK. Partly spring cleaning and partly regulatory, the news should be seen as a positive move from major publishers as a step towards greater digital transparency and an improved user experience for consumers. The initial panic from advertisers saw programmatic ad spend drop fairly dramatically across the board, mainly due to the uncertainty around the regulation itself, with marketers waiting to see its true impact. However, the concern has now began to subside, and faith seems to have been restored in programmatic, with spend recovering to the levels pre-GDPR. Where third-party data is more difficult to access, the opportunity for contextual planning in digital has returned. Third-party data could accurately tell you whether someone was in market, stood on the high street, or just behaving like your current customers. Contextual was a domain of offline channels and much less digital. Relying less on third-party data and more on the environment and the quality of a placement should also begin to drive better results for advertisers. But it has exposed the area where digital advertising is often held back. Creative. Focusing on how an ad looks to the consumer and understanding of the device being used and then buying in contextually relevant environments should serve to actually improve the experience and simplify the process for advertisers. It's safe to say we probably haven't seen the last of GDPR casualties quite yet, but if progress continues to be made and the digital ecosystem becomes more transparent, it will definitely be a price worth paying. Not that I wasn't listening to that, Ben, but while you were talking, I did text my mum to ask actually whether she knew what GDPR stands for. And she was pretty close. She couldn't get the G, but knew that it was some sort of data protection regulation. So it really does go to show that actually this is a massive consumer issue that most people do understand, not just in the world of media. And next up, Michelle's going to be talking to us about Facebook. With 1.94 billion monthly active users, is there any room for growth? Late in July, Facebook's shares dropped a huge 19% in a single day, the biggest one-day loss of value in US stock market history. As trading closed, 
the social network giant had lost over $100 billion in value, while Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth had dropped by nearly $16 billion. Just 24 hours later, Twitter stock dropped 21% after announcing it had lost a million active users, the combination of which caused a mass tremor across Wall Street. To some analysts, this has been a long time coming, thanks to a slowdown in growth, dwindling users' attention and the fallout from recent political and data handling scandals. To shaky shareholders, it was as simple as concerns that neither platform would be able to sustain the profit levels they once had, and for that reason, they were out. The impact on profit is expected to come from multiple directions, but namely costs up and users down, the significant costs coming from having to improve privacy safeguards and data protection. Facebook claimed it would double the number of employees working on safety and security to 20,000 this year. And that doesn't come cheap. Twitter, too, has said that efforts to rid its platform of spam has led it to eject millions of accounts, about 3 million to be precise, although there has been an 8% drop in abuse reports. New European laws and GDPR have also had an impact, with legislation only likely to continue. Jack Dorsey, Twitter's co-founder and chief executive, said the numbers reflect the work we're doing to ensure more people get value from Twitter every day. What has been the fear for Facebook is that the business model depends on new user growth. And with 1.94 billion monthly active users, Facebook may have simply run out of people to recruit. What's more, there is an increasing concern that young people are leaving the platform as older ones remain. Teens are abandoning or just not joining Facebook, said Richard Holway, chairman at UK tech analyst house Tech Market View. These factors will ultimately cause a slowdown in advertising on the platform, and therefore profit. But if we readjust to focus on quality rather than quantity, this can only mean good things for both advertisers and users. Healthy platforms, quality data, engaged customers, ultimately positive for both brands' long-term growth. So, random fact for you, Al Pacino was the first face on Facebook. What's a fact? I know, right? Um, A very early iteration of the site had him in the header image, obscured by a lot of binary code, and for ages no one knew it was him. You can thank me for that later. (laughs) Moving swiftly on, our next read ladders really nicely off some work we talked about last month, which was about representing. This month, we're talking about misrepresenting. Namely, are brands exploiting working-class culture? More than half of young people aged 18 to 30 believe that brands exploit working-class culture, according to Amplify's latest Young Blood study. It's a damning statement that further underlines appropriation as hugely problematic. And as calls for diversity across media grow, brands are grappling more and more with the task of finding the most credible ways to engage their audience constantly straddling the line between championing the merits of a culture and potentially exploiting it. Mars UK has been notably bold in its push for representation in recent years through its marketing for Maltesers. Three TV spots featuring people with disabilities in humorous, relatable narratives played as part of Channel 4's diversity competition. These have been succeeded by ads approaching everyday stories about women often overlooked in media. This is a representation that circumnavigates prevailing stereotypes and actually engages with the relatable human truths. And it paid off for Mars, 
as it became the most successful campaign both in terms of buzz and sales performance in recent years. It helps if brands put their money where their mouth is. And better still if the brand's message and actions align with the championing of working class excellence. Adidas, for example, famously funds and backs young athletes and musicians, putting the human element at the centre across of its communications. Penguin Random House recently announced a similar initiative, partnering with Stormzy to launch his own imprint, Hashtag Murky Books. It's a move that will not only allow the grime artist to publish his own book, but serve as a platform for a new generation of voices. A PRable scheme backed with real corporate responsibility, funding internships at the publishing house and open submissions for first-time writers to win a publishing contract in the future. These are all very welcome breaks from the ways in which working-class culture is so often depicted. Back in April this year, Puma hosted an experiential PR event named the House of Hustle, reportedly inspired by council estate drug dealing. It shouldn't really take an expert to know this kind of misrepresentation is tone-deaf, inappropriate and offensive. But some brands are managing to bridge this gap. McCain's and Iceland's move away from the celebrity-fronted campaigns towards depicting real families at home are great examples. There's an inherent value exchange in media. As more and more brands vie for our attention in increasingly vocal pieces of content, brands face more scrutiny than ever. That the same young blood study concluded credibility rather than cool was a motivator for consideration and purchase amongst young people demonstrates the key in all of this authenticity. After all, why would any consumer engage with a brand that fundamentally misunderstands or misrepresents them? Our next read looks at the rise of fake profiles on Instagram and what this means for the influencer landscape. In 2018, a huge 39% of marketers plan to increase their investment into influencer marketing. But with so many reports of fake audiences, including recent claims that 12% of Instagrammers buy fake followers, brands would be forgiven for thinking they have stumbled into digital marketing's new wild west. Facebook has even admitted that around 3% of Facebook accounts are still fake, despite its algorithms nipping many in the bud at their source. The social media giant deleted 583 million fake accounts in Q1 alone this year. A major contribution to these issues is the severe overemphasis on reach across the industry, often at the expense of relevance, content quality and engagement. This, along with the eruption of influencer discovery tools and social networks, has meant that by simply having the right kind of numbers, even the least credible influencers have managed to gain a place on some media plans. A similar case can be seen across other social platforms, but in this case, it may not be within platforms' financial interest to stage too much for crackdown. After all, it inflates their user numbers and can increase revenues. In order to challenge these issues, the biggest move that agencies and advertisers can do is create demand for genuine engagement, quality content and real advocacy. Emerging technologies can help here, as they provide access to metrics like human audience, and engagement in place of traditional reach. A demand for quality engagement will also provide influencers with a level playing field in which they're not having to compete with those who are cheating the system. This will in turn encourage influencers to focus on maintaining their real audiences, something we know our top influencer partners here at The Seven Stars already do. But while the right tools make an impact, no amount of data can replace a human element involved in selecting influencer partners. Content quality, opinions, preferences and stories play such an important role 
that a hands-on approach is needed to see through a successful influencer partnership. While the industry needs to make some major changes, we wouldn't recommend abandoning influencers altogether. The opportunity to work with passionate and influential partners in the social space remains powerful, even in the face of fake followers. And if you'd like to know anything more about working with influencers in a brand safe way, please approach the Supernova team at Seven Stars and we've got a full working document of how we are making sure that we are brand safe. Our next live read this month comes from really fascinating insight that's been generated by our in-house research, the QT. Are we detoxing just to retox? Findings from this month's QT study indicated that two in five Brits consider technology addiction as damaging as drug or alcohol abuse, yet most don't even attempt to quit. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the age group struggling most to switch off is millennials. They are the most prolific smartphone users, with nearly 100% of people aged 18 to 34 using one. 67% of the 18 to 34 cohort admitted they often feel a need to take a break from technology, rising to 71% among those under 24. At the same time though, only 6% of this same group admitted to actively turning off their phones at evenings or weekends, with 2 in 3 saying they'd like to be connected all of the time. So what is responsible for this paradoxical state of mind? Our survey indicates that there are several factors at play here. First is the blurring line between work and personal life, which is becoming more intertwined thanks to the growth in mobile and social platforms. This is potentially why 57% of 18 to 34 year olds feel so dependent on technology versus only 51% in the 65 plus age group who are largely retired or close to retiring from working life. We must also consider the changing nature of social currency. In a recent campaign article, Emma Woods of Wagamama said, being busy can be an aspirational status symbol. This increasing social pressure to look busy on social media is no doubt playing a part in fueling people's desire to stay connected, in turn increasing their dependence on mobile devices in particular. Despite this though, there is evidence to suggest that consumers do want to be able to use technology to connect with friends and family on a more intimate level. Take voice notes for example, they have gained popularity among young people, with 10% of 18 to 34 year olds now recording them in place of phone calls. Given that three quarters of the Londoners we surveyed are worried about losing the art of face-to-face -face conversation, perhaps voice notes will be the key to bridging the gap between using a more personal style of communication and the pace of an always-on world. So what can brands do to help encourage healthier relationships between consumers and their devices? They could start by rethinking their approach when it comes to interacting with consumers online and shaping communications around the needs of an individual. Something as simple as avoiding sending e-shots late at night, for example, would be a good first step towards encouraging a healthier relationship between the amount of time consumers spend in the digital world and that spent connecting to people off-screen. Consumer attention has become a valued commodity for brands, but as we move towards a healthier tech ecosystem, their priority should be to work with consumers and not against them by helping them take more control over their tech habits. And one of the most interesting campaigns centred around digital detoxing was from KitKat. Back in 2012, in the Netherlands, they created a Wi-Fi free zone based on the insight that the world is becoming one big Wi-Fi zone, encouraging people to take a break. So Michelle, while we've got you here, mm. 
can you explain to us exactly what is the QT? Yeah, so the QT stands for the Quarterly Tracker and it was born late 2016 and we at the Seven Stars just really wanted to be in tune with consumers sort of beyond the London bubble. So what we do every quarter is we survey a thousand nationally representative Brits and we ask them their feelings towards uh, institutions such as financial and political institutions and we also quarterly ask them what they're planning on spending their money on. Um, So we also use the opportunity for our clients to ask questions to the nationally representative respondents as well around anything specific to their category or the climate that they they operate in. And we also use the opportunity to make sure that our fingers are always on the pulse so we can ask questions around the latest trends such as digital detoxing. And we've also um, tapped into some more PRable topics such as fake news, cryptocurrencies and International Women's Day. And was there any event in particular that prompted you to start tracking consumer behaviour? It was actually born out of a Brexit study that we did uh, towards the former part of 2016. So we wanted to understand how how consumers really felt about Brexit. And the results were so fascinating that it was something that we wanted to continue to track. But why just track Brexit when we can track other things as well? And what particularly about digital detoxing made you think this is a must-have? Um, for this QT. So we knew that uh, Calm was 2017's app of the year and we also read some other studies that have been done externally around how consumers are checking their smartphones once every 12 minutes. We found that really fascinating so we wanted to explore that further and understand whether it's just us Londoners that are glued to, glued to our phones, whether it is a national, national kind of yeah. phenomenon as well. And if you were to think of one fact or or something that you've learned from the QT that's really stood out over the years since you started tracking, what would that be? I actually think it's probably one from this wave. Uh, So like I said, we track Brexit. I don't want to keep on banging the Brexit (laughs) drum, Um, but we track sentiment around Brexit. So how people are feeling towards the trigger of Article 50. And we ask people whether they're confused, upset, worried, um, happy. Happy is actually halved since 2017. So happiness has gone down from 12% to 7%. And in place of that, confusion has significantly risen. So I think that just sums up how we're all feeling. I mean, that just sounds like my average Saturday night. (laughs) Um, Happiness down, confusion up. (laughs) And if anyone wants to find out any more about the QT or... Um, wants to get hold of some facts or figures from it, how can they go about that? So if you're already a client at the Seven Stars, please just speak to a member of your account team and they'll send you a copy if you haven't already see- if you haven't already received one. However, if you're not a client, then please head to our Twitter page, which is just at the Seven Stars, where we release facts and figures around the latest QT wave daily. Otherwise, please head to our website where we've got an article up there where you can read at your own leisure. Now, before we sign off... It's my favourite section of the month. It's cool stuff we love. And this is what is coming up in September. This month, our podcast recommendation is The Tip-Off, available now on Acast and your other podcast channels. It's an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at some of the best investigative journalism from recent years. You'll hear about how they chase leads, uncover hidden truths, and actually put themselves in a fair amount of danger doing so. As a football fan, episode 6, Caught Offside, is a personal favourite. They talked to Claire Newell from the Daily Telegraph about her investigation into the murky world of football.
For a more shocking story, episode 21, Ready to Talk, will leave you thinking about it long after you've pressed pause. For anyone really missing that slightly out of tune rendition of Somebody to Love, our TV team has exactly what you're looking for. X Factor is backed for its 15th series. Hooray! Um, Taking over your TV on a Saturday night and flooding you with a wall of sound. Legend has it that ITV producers took precisely three minutes to decide that they wanted the X Factor when Simon Cal first pitched it. It's also responsible for 39 number one singles, but it's yet to be seen whether this season, number 15, is going to rival the seventh series, which was famous for Matt Cardle, Cher Lloyd and One Direction, and notoriously hit 14 million at the peak of its success. This time around, we're also going a bit more highbrow, suggesting something to read. For September, our recommendation is What the Dog Saw by Malcolm Gladwell. Those familiar with his work will enjoy his accessible take on academic writing, whilst legitimately questioning many of his conclusions on a range of topics, including memory, genius and instinct. On the back of his popular and recommended podcast, Revisionist History, Gladwell's latest book brings together the best of his New Yorker articles, bite-sized arguments on the nature of everything from the eponymous dog and his whisperer owner to ketchup and why there aren't as many varieties as mustard. It really does have something for everyone, enough interesting tidbits to get you through even the driest media lunch. If you're new to Gladwell, find a copy and do pass it on to a friend when finished. You won't regret it. In case anyone is mourning the passing of National Burger Day on the 23rd of August, um, this month's recommendation is brought to you by Deliveroo. Um, A project very close to my heart is something that myself and my team have been working on. The Battle of the Burger is the first of four awesome time-out curated food competitions. A series of tongue-in-cheek, boxing-style battles with some of the capital's best food vendors going head-to-head in a culinary championship. Eight amazing burger makers will bring their signature patties to the yard. Damn right, it's better than yours. Um, And over two hours, you'll get the chance to sample all of them. There'll be a quart burgers in case anyone's panicking about eating eight full burgers in two hours. The Battle of the Burger takes place at the Geffrey Museum Gardens on the 6th of October, but tickets are on sale now. So get along to Time Out's website or check the programme notes to book your tickets now. Well... That's all we have time for for this month's Seven Talks. Liked it? Then please leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. And make sure while you're there to hit subscribe to stay up to date with all the goings-on here at The Seven Stars. We also want to thank this month's stellar contributors Gabrielle Sillers, Anushka Clark, Jamie Green, Johnny Harrison and our Insight Data and Analytics team. And finally, as ever, a big shout out to our brilliant production partners, ACAS, for allowing us lot in the studio once again to record this podcast. So that's all from us. Until next month. Bye. Bye. What a fact. I know, isn't that blinding? So actually, basically, there was like, you know, the header image at the top. It was Al Pacino's face with a whole load of binary code over the top of it. Attica!